Father, thank you for the, this, the great time of being able to gather together this morning and lift up in the name of Jesus and to praise him and to rehearse what it is he's done for us and who it is you are and how it is you have loved us. Lord, we live and we breathe that truth. And we need that truth from Monday to Saturday uh, to be so evident in us. And, and this is a day, God, that helps us remember these things. So be with us now as we study together and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, you know, this week marks something very significant. It's the anniversary of what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. How many of you knew that? A lot, a lot of you? Okay. The Protestant Reformation. 501 years ago, a monk by the name of Martin Luther went and nailed the 95 theses on the door there, the church door in Wittenberg. Been there, seen that door, got to touch it. And um, that's when the whole Protestant church thing began. Those 95 theses that he nailed on the door, those were ideas about how the church ought to be. He was wanting to reform the church. One classic way to summarize the core ideas of that movement, the movement that we call the Protestant Reformation, is to say, we, the church, will be governed by the authority of Scripture alone, Scripture only. Not your opinion, not my opinion. It's the teaching of Scripture that will govern us. Another thing is to say that we are saved by grace alone, not our merit, not on the basis of the things we do, but by grace alone are we saved. We were singing about that this morning. Another aspect of the Protestant Reformation was to say that uh, we take hold of this salvation that is offered to us in Jesus by faith alone, not by the stuff we do, not by the things we accomplish, but by faith alone. Part of that Reformation also argued that we understand that, that all of this rests entirely on the work, that is the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus alone. So therefore, we are a Jesus church, period. We are a Jesus church. And that means too that we live to the glory of God alone. We have a purpose. I don't care where you work or what you do or how you serve. You're to do all of that for the glory of God alone. That's all part of the teaching of this thing called the Protestant Reformation. And we are so very grateful to celebrate that heritage. Uh, we are a Presbyterian church. We are rooted in history. Deer Creek Church is 32 years old this December. The Protestant church in general is 501 years old. Jesus' church movement is over 2,000 years old. So why don't you take just a second and look at the person next to you and tell them how old you think they look. <laughs> We're rooted and grounded in history. There's a lot of history here, folks. So just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, this Wednesday is uh, Halloween and everybody be trick-or-treating and that's great. We, we celebrate it with our neighbors too. We go up and down the street and get to meet some of the neighbors and some of them have jello shots for uh, the adults, not the children. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's funny how our culture celebrates that. But let's not forget historically, this is a rich week for the Protestant Reformation. So anyway, shift gears a little bit. Uh, we have reached the place in Jesus' sermon where he tackles the issue of how his kingdom 
how his church is going to grow, how it's going to encompass others, bring others into that kingdom. Remember, he's already amazed the crowds uh, when in the Beatitudes he said, you know what, citizenship in my kingdom is wide open. It's wide open to whoever is poor in spirit. It's wide open to whoever it is that finds themselves mourning. It's wide open to the meek. It's wide open to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he said, when you enter my kingdom, you will change. You will become a merciful person. You will be pure in heart, single-hearted, single-minded devotion to Jesus. You will become a peacemaker, he said. And this was so contrary to the system of religion set up by the scribes and the Pharisees. People, honestly, this is not an overstatement, they were shocked to hear what Jesus had to say. This was shocking, shocking news. Imagine being told that you could get into God's kingdom. You could actually get into the kingdom of heaven, not on the basis of your own goodness, but on the basis of Jesus' goodness. I mean, that was news, friends. Nobody was saying that. Nobody had ever said that before, not clearly. And Jesus wanted that message to be spread far and wide. He wanted everybody to hear this message. And so Jesus needed a strategy. How is that going to happen? How is that message going to get out? How are others going to hear about the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God? And uh, so he came up with a strategy. And here it is. He said, you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus said to the crowd on a hillside, and he says it to us today, guess what, guys? You're it. Tag. You're it. You're my strategy for bringing others into the kingdom. I'm not going to be pushing it out there on Facebook. I'm not going to be tweeting it. I'm not going to be Instagramming it. My strategy for welcoming others into my kingdom is you. That's what he said. That's what he says today. You are salt and light. That is his strategy. Now, the question is, what does Jesus mean when he says you are salt and you are light? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. What does it mean, practically speaking, to say to us that we are to be salt and light in this world in which we live? And I would just say, for starters, salt and light have something in common. Both of these things dramatically, dramatically affect whatever they come into contact with. Always happens. I mean, think about salt for a minute. What does salt do? Well, it makes uh, people thirsty if they get enough of it. It spices things up. It's also a preservative. So at least in part, Jesus was saying, you know, live the kind of life that's, that's going to make people thirst for my kingdom. The kind of life that will spice things up by making people think about what they believe and what it is they value. Live the kind of life that will preserve what is good, what is just, 
what is true, what is right in society. Live that kind of life. Think about light. It's, it's a similar kind of thing. What does light do? Well, light illuminates. Duh. It exposes. It actually draws people toward it. If you've ever been out camping... Uh, one of the things we like to do in Canada, we will build a fire on the beach when weather allows. And, and you build a fire and you don't have to ask everybody to come down to the fire. They just are drawn to it, you know. They just want to sit around the campfire, sit around that light in the dark. And people are drawn to light. Jesus says, live the kind of life that will reveal my love, my grace, my forgiveness, my truth to people. And frankly, ultimately attract them, humanly speaking, attract them to the kingdom. And friends, this is a, an incredible honor. Sometimes for many of us, it feels like a burden. Oh, I have to let others know I follow Jesus. But it's actually an incredible honor that Jesus gives us. He didn't need to use us. He just chose to. Uh, that he would commit to using us to get this incredible good news message out is just amazing. You are salt and you are light, he says. That's kind of tricky though. Because if you stop and think about it, salt and light can be, it can be good, definitely. But there are instances or circumstances where it can actually be bad. Let me explain. If you put salt into a wound, what happens? Yeah, ouch. Wow, that's not good. If you've ever had that happen, that's not good. It stings. Uh, if you put too much salt on food, what happens? Ah, it's just too salty. You want to spit it out. It doesn't taste good. You've gone too far. If you get too much salt in your diet, what happens? You get high blood pressure, all kinds of things. The point is, salt isn't always good. The same is true about light. The glare of a light that's just too bright makes you want to almost recoil from it. If you have ever had a bright light shined into your eyes, it makes you want to look away. It even can be painful depending on how bright the light is. And the reason I mention this is just because I fear that sometimes... Not always, thank goodness, but sometimes we kingdom citizens, we Jesus followers, although we have good intentions, we can sometimes inadvertently repel people from Jesus instead of help to draw them to him. Would you agree that can happen? You ever done that? Yep, okay, thank you. That's the kind of help I need in this message. Uh, Sheldon Van Auken, who was somebody who knew uh, C.S. Lewis really well, made this observation. He said, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their service, their certainty, their purposefulness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths, he says. You know, how we act makes all the difference in the world as to whether we, uh, as salt, will, you know, make people thirsty, spice things up, act as a preservative in our society and in our culture, or just unnecessarily gag people. How we act makes the difference. And I want to talk about some things with you this morning in the minutes that remain. These are super duper practical kinds of things that uh, probably most of us already know. You don't even need to hear this, but you're already here, and so you'll have to hear it. But some of us, I'm assuming, do need to have this reminder. Uh, in part, um, I'm doing this too because uh, of the text that we're studying. We just happen to be in this place in the Sermon on the Mount. 
but also because we're entering into a season right now, which is a weird season in our culture here in North America. It's actually a season of invitation, you might call it. It's one of the rare times in the calendar of the year when you can say to people, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to church and we're, we're doing this thing. I'll mention this again later, but in this thing on Saturday, believe it or not, people would come with you to that. People who don't even know Jesus just because they know their heart tells them it's a good thing to help schools, to help organizations like Shiloh House, or to even come to church, which they wouldn't ordinarily do, but it's a season of the year where people will actually come to church if we invite them. So it's, it's actually in the providence of God, a great thing for us to be talking about right now. So here's what I want to do. First thing, I want to talk about three ways to repel people from your faith, okay? <laughs> and here's number one. Have a sort of in-your-face kind of Christianity, have that kind of attitude. You know, this is uh, someone called bullhorn Christianity. You know, get on the soapbox, blast it out to people. Or it's placard carrying, screaming and yelling kinds of Christianity. It's warning people about their future by telling them, you're going to hell, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, it's also doing it with the attitude of, and I don't care that much, you know. That comes across. It's the, you're gay and I don't like you kind of proclamation. I don't like you because of who you are. I don't like you because of what you do. It's really not recognizing that while you might think that, Jesus doesn't. Now, Jesus actually, that person matters a great deal to them. You've probably seen examples of this. Somebody standing out in an open area, preaching to passers-by, right? Repent of your sins. Jesus is coming. And when he returns, you're going to get judged, you know, that kind of thing. Anybody ever seen that? I saw that years ago uh, down in the 16th Street Mall a couple of times. Um, if you've ever seen that, you notice that crowds aren't necessarily forming to hear that message. <laughs> Do you notice that? <laughs> Because know it or not, that, that person is laying on the salt so thick, it really doesn't taste any good. Nobody wants a bite of that. Nobody wants to engage with that. And here's the thing. Anytime we speak the truth, because here's the other part. You know, part of what that person is saying, as obnoxiously as they're saying it, I, I, you know, there's some truth to that. Not denying that. But anytime we speak the truth seemingly without love, it makes the truth actually, I think, harder to hear. We can have great intentions, but if we aren't always applying the gospel to ourselves, right? Remembering our own sin, our own fallenness, our own brokenness, our own constant daily need of the grace of Jesus. If we aren't interacting with others with that kind of meekness and humility, then we're not representing Jesus very well. In fact, regardless of the truth we speak, we may be needlessly turning people off, humanly speaking, as opposed to on, you know, wanting to hear more about Jesus. When it comes to representing Jesus to others, we ought always to be considerate of who it is we're talking to. Uh, if I don't know a person at all, I may not want to start the conversation with, hey, you know, I'm a Christian. Are you? Oh, you're not? You know, you're going to hell, you know. Being facetious here, we, we, you know. But there are less abrasive versions of that that are really just as abrasive. I remember some years ago, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses 
uh, were out in our neighborhood, and they were going through, you know, just knocking on doors. And a neighbor of mine was sanding and staining his front door. I mean, he's captive audience, right? He can't leave. And they come up to him, and, you know, they begin a conversation with him, and, and uh, that conversation went on actually for quite a while. And I, I saw it, and I would come out every so often and, and just kind of note that the, that conversation was still happening. And afterwards, my neighbor caught me, and, and this is because I'm, I was the, you know, religious interpreter for my street there. <laughs> and he wanted to know, you know, what's with these people? They kept asking me questions. They kept wanting to give me literature. They wanted to know if they could come back. I mean, what, couldn't they see I was busy and I'm not interested? And they had no consideration, you see, for what he was doing. They weren't reading him. Is he interested at all? Now, that was Jehovah's Witness, but um, Christians can be like that sometimes. And that is the essence of in your face, in your face, faith sharing. You go in welcome or not. I don't care if I'm welcome or not. I'm going to let them have the truth. And usually when you're not welcome, you know, you turn people off. Now, there's a flip side to this. A lot of times we're more welcome than we think we are, but we're too afraid to ask, right? That's not a good thing either. Prayerfully, carefully, humbly, meekly be willing to share if the opportunity presents itself, right? But when we act like that in your face kind of faith sharing, when we act like that, it's like pouring a whole jar of salt on a single steak, right? It's not very appetizing. It's probably not going to lead to further conversation. Okay, let me mention a second thing. A second way to pour on the salt or blind somebody, if you want, with your life is to have an attitude about your faith, which is sort of that holier-than-thou kind of Christianity. It's a very judgmental kind of edge to your Christianity. You're pretty disgusted with the culture. Now, I'm not saying there's not stuff in our culture to be disgusted about, but, but I mean, you lead with that. You know, is, aren't things just terrible, what people are doing nowadays, living differently than I live is kind of the attitude? There's a lot of smugness in that, a lot of self-righteousness in that when we paint ourselves as better than whatever goes on out there, right? It's kind of an us versus them mentality. And it's a mentality that kind of leads to thinking that says Christians, good guys, everybody else, bad guys. We kind of talked about this last week a little bit. It's the problem of evil in the world is what we're really talking about. And the reality is that there is evil in the world. There's a lot of evil out there. But we said last week too, there's a lot of evil in here. So when you're going to talk about the evil out there, don't forget to mention the evil in here. Otherwise, you can have a very abrasive way of talking about it that's frankly not very helpful. It's not very honest. Solzhenitsyn said the battle line between good and evil runs through the heart of every human, every individual, every man. And when we start thinking that, you know, the church people are the good people and People outside the church are the bad people. That just, frankly, is too simplistic. It's not altogether true. The truth is people in the church struggle with sin, just like people outside the church. Have you noticed that about the people sitting next to you? <laughs> Have you? Yeah. yeah, my wife struggles with that. <laughs> Here's the difference, though. Here's the difference. Those of us in the church... Those of us following Jesus, we have Jesus. <sighs> Boom, that's the difference. It really is. Jesus forgives us. 
Jesus comes into us and wants to change us and can change us. Jesus can make us more like him. That's the essential difference. It's Jesus, 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 and Jesus. You see, when we think of people out there as bad or evil, we start developing almost a, almost a protectionist mentality. We got to huddle together in here. We got to be careful about what's going on out there. You know, watch out. The world is going to get you. Guess what? Jesus has already overcome the world. But we start thinking, oh, man, the world is going to get you. You better keep an eye on anyone who doesn't follow Jesus. You better hide the valuables, gather the, the children, protect the women. There's no telling what an unbeliever is going to do. Come on. People who don't follow Jesus can feel that when we develop those kinds of attitudes. That's a major turnoff. Here's another thing. That is a major impediment to developing any kind of real friendship, which I think Jesus wants us to do. You know, the interesting thing is Jesus didn't send out that vibe. I mean, you read his life, you, you study the gospels. Jesus did not send out that vibe. And yet here is a guy who was perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. And yet he actually attracted, it says, the Bible says, sinners. They wanted to be with him. They wanted to hear from him. Sinners, when the Bible uses it in that context, it's, it's, it's actually contrasting them with religious types of people, Right? In fact, this was so much the case in Jesus' ministry that it was said about Jesus that he was a friend of tax collectors. That was like the quintessential sinner, you know, the traitor kind of sinner. Tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That bothered a lot of people, but not Jesus. The point is we need to stop being holier than thou if that's what we're being. And we need to stop judging and start caring and start loving if we're to really be the salt and light Jesus wants us to be in the communities where we live. That's number two. Here's number three. A third way to pour on the salt is to practice sort of a, a cosmetic Christianity. Uh, and by this, I mean, it's kind of just a skin deep spirituality, looks good on Sunday morning. You practice it on Sunday morning but it doesn't penetrate deeply enough to influence our lives or to change our hearts really Monday to Saturday, not very deeply. If you scratch very deeply, something else comes out. This is the man or woman in the workplace that lets everybody know right up front, they're a Christian. I'm a Christian. And they go to church and they support the right causes and they protest the wrong ones and they vote for the right people and they are good Christian people, right? But then somehow they gain a reputation for being the most ruthless, the most cutthroat, the most corner-cutting, selfish, backstabbing person in the office or at school or wherever this may be. This is the neighbor who's always making certain that everybody knows he or she won't miss church because after all, they're a Christian. But then in a conversation that takes place in the backyard, they're, they're just not gracious people. They're critical people. Maybe, you know, racial comments get made or gossip is engaged in or there's just this judgmental tone to everything around. No interest in, in knowing or serving the people around them, just judging them. And their actions or their lack thereof, the words out of their mouth kind of reveal what's frankly really in their heart. Now, Sometimes we reveal what's in our heart by what we say. Sometimes we reveal, reveal what's in our heart by what we don't say. We just don't care enough to say anything. 
we get so insular in our world. Well, you know, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. Going to heaven, I'm looking forward to that. It's great to have Jesus in my life. Too bad for you, you know, if you don't. And, and we don't care enough to cross that line of taking a risk and letting our faith be known. So there's a balance here. There really is. I'll tell you this, nothing repels people from Christianity as much as a, the hypocrisy of a skin-deep faith. Can uh, any of you relate to what I'm describing here, these three things? You know, the in-your-face kind of Christianity? Anybody ever experienced that? Anybody ever dish that out? Yeah. The holier-than-thou kind of Christianity, the us versus them, the we're the good guys, the you're the bad guys, or the cosmetic kind of Christianity. These are like salt that burns and light that blinds. It's not helpful, not good. And this is not what we want to be as a community, as a church together. And I am really thankful that there are better ways for us to be salt and light. I'm really thankful that when I was wrestling with the claims of Christ going all the way back in my life to when I was just 18 years old, when I was wrestling with some of this stuff, there were people like Steve Huey and Wilbur Miller who taught a Bible study for young people and Pastor McGee, one of the most gracious guys I ever ran into. He pastored a Christian Missionary Alliance Church, had all the time in the world for students. And Mrs. Ewald, who was a Sunday school teacher who could teach like nobody. I mean, she was unbelievable. I remember just hanging on every word this woman was saying because it was all so new to me and it was so powerful. A guy named Ted Seymour who actually ran a student ministry in that Christian Missionary Alliance Church and and Ted was from England and he had this cool accent so you wanted to hear whatever he had to say anyway, right? (laughs) But he was also very gracious and very humble and very wise about how he lived out and shared his faith. These people made me thirsty to know more about Jesus. And uh, it was people like them who God used to draw me closer, humanly speaking. They cared about me and they, they listened to me. They befriended me. And when the time was appropriate, they shared their faith with me. And they also challenged me because I was a mess. I'd been in and out of jail and I had gotten in various kinds of trouble. I was a mess. And instead of dismissing me as a kid you don't want in the youth group, they actually reached out to me. And they lived out their faith. I saw these people live out their faith. Steve Huey, for example, is a guy who, he was a student in school with me, one year older than me. Um, and Steve was incredible. He, he, he lived out his faith even when it cost him something. Steve was a big drug user in our high school. That's why I looked up to him. <laughs> Steve made a bundle of money selling mescaline, psilocybin, and LSD tabs. And I remember when I first heard Steve had become a Christian, my first thought was, oh, Lord, that's going to affect the supply, you know. (laughs) And then I thought, nah, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Steve makes too much money off of doing this. You know, that isn't going to happen. So I watched Steve, and to my surprise, it didn't take long at all. Steve stopped selling, and it did affect the supply. And he stopped selling, even though that meant a huge financial loss to him. This kid was in high school and making lots of money. And uh, when all that happened, too, I remember watching Steve lose friends. Friend after friend, right after friend. Yeah. Uh, Some started even to make fun of him as the new holy roller or whatever. 
because of this newfound faith. And I watched Steve actually be gracious to those people and love on them and care about them. And I was impressed. Steve followed Christ even though it cost him. And that, that got my attention. I thought, okay, this must be real for him, you know. And after I watched Steve for a while, uh, I was the one going to Steve and bringing up the subject about Jesus. And Steve gave me a little New Testament to read. I didn't really have a Bible. I had one of those big, you know, Bibles you set on the, uh, we had one of those at home. You put them on the coffee table and uh, that kind of thing, pictures in it and stuff. You couldn't carry it around with you. Uh, not without massive embarrassment, but um, he gave me a Bible. And I got to tell you, he made me thirsty. Made me hungry to hear about Jesus watching him. And that is one aspect of what it means to be salt and light, to live out your faith even when you have to pay a price for doing so. And as people you, you see doing that, you know, when you see them doing that with grace and you see them paying a price, but they're living in the context of, you know, humility. Boy, they, they look very much like Jesus. It's a very attractive faith. Paying a price for your faith means different things to, to different folks. For you, it could mean uh, humbly refusing, you know, to cut ethical corners at work, but doing it humbly, not, not judgmentally. You know, that's, ah, that's just something I can't do. Or it could mean going out of your way, investing your time, or maybe even some of your money to help somebody with a need. You know, oftentimes the connection that God gives us to create new relationships is somebody has a need that we observe. And we think, you know what, I, I can speak into that. I can help with that. Next thing you know, conversations are happening. Now, why would you do that? Well, one reason, because that is what Jesus would do. Boom, there you go. That's your reason. You do it because Jesus would do it and he would want you to. For you, the cost might mean giving up opportunities to advance in the marketplace so that you can better serve and better lead your family. I've seen people do this in this church. Uh, refuse a, a promotion simply because they wanted to, they, they knew that promotion was gonna take them down a path where they couldn't establish the priorities that they wanted for their family and for themselves. And so they said, no. Does that seem crazy? Yeah, it is crazy. In our culture, that's stupid. That's stupid crazy. And it's so honored Jesus. Um, you know, making choices, doing things that help you and family members grow spiritually, setting priorities that say, you know what? This is priority number one for us. Things like reaching up. Worship, things like reaching in, connecting with other Christians and reaching out, serving. Why? Well, here you go, because Jesus did this. These were his priorities. You know, uh, sometimes the price you pay could mean, it could mean paying a social price because you're, you're willing to stick up for people nobody else is willing to stick up for. That was another thing I saw Steve Huey do. You know, kids that get ridiculed, made fun of, uh, marginalized, pushed to the sides. I began to see Steve take more of a, a caring, loving, serving interest in people like that. Man, did that catch my attention. Nobody else was doing that. But here was this guy who claimed that Jesus had come into his life and now he was doing that. Those are tough decisions for a student. Those are tough decisions for an adult to love on people that nobody else wants to love. 
Point is, really living out your faith, it, it absolutely does cost something. Earlier in this service, people gave away money. Did it cost them something? You bet it did. They're taking it seriously. Really living out your faith does cost you things. The point is, I, I you know, I, well, this, this example occurs to me. I know a young Christian woman who pays a social price because she's a Christian woman. Uh, she doesn't believe in extramarital sex. <clears throat> Turns out most guys do. Even Christian guys, guys who call themselves Christians, they're in the column of, yep, extramarital sex, good thing. But she says no, and she pays a price because of that. Here's the deal. I don't know what your price will be, but I do know this. When you take these kinds of steps, when you're willing to pay a price for your faith, that's a salty thing to do. That's a good salty thing to do. That has impact on other people. And here's the thing, other people are watching you. Whether you know it or not, other people are taking notice. You with me so far? Okay, we're gonna shift gears now. Um, another way to be salt and light is to not just tell people about Jesus, it's to actually show people about Jesus. There are a few things as salt savory or as gently illuminating as a good deed done in the name of Jesus, period. This is why we do the serving deal coming up this Saturday. It's the only reason we do it. You know, we did not take a survey and find out that people's calendars were just empty. They just had nothing to do. Uh, no, we assume you've got a lot to do. We assume you're exactly like us. You got plenty in your calendar. It's just that we know that occasionally we need to stimulate this thing of serving together and we need an opportunity to say to the community as a whole, hey, this is who we are. We follow Jesus. He loves you. He cares. And we're here to serve you. That's what the day to serve is all about on uh, next Saturday. Um, this is why G Jesus made this statement. This is why he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. That's what usually results when we demonstrate the love of Jesus out there and we go and serve in his name. People turn around and they eventually come to give praise to the heavenly father because of those kinds of things. We can easily forget it's not just words, it's what we do for people that really makes a difference. If you wanna know what it means to be salt and light in the 21st century here in the United States, where so many, many people are alienated from one another, where few people ever really experience kindness or love or acceptance, especially from the community called the church. If you wanna know what it means to be salt and light, it's to identify a person's need and then meet it. Whether it's emotional or a material need or a relational need, even a spiritual need. It's to extend the love of Jesus to others in tangible ways, ways that Jesus himself would do. Now, again, and again in the gospels, when we look at the life of Jesus, what do we see him doing? Well, we see him feeding the hungry. We see him caring for the sick. We see him weeping with the brokenhearted. We see him hanging out with sinners. People nobody else wanted to hang out with, but he did. You know, uh, here's a statistic. This is actually very frightening to a pastor, but people forget 90% of what you say to them. 
they almost never forget anything that you do for them. Woo. Is that true, you think? Oh, thanks. I know it's true. I know it's true. I, I forget 90% of what I said last week, so I know that you, you probably saw that. Acts of kindness. I'll say it again. There are few things as salt savory or as gently illuminating as a good deed done in the name of Jesus. And the truth is, we were made for good deeds. We're made for good deeds. The apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 2, for we are God's workmanship. Imagine yourself, you are God's workmanship. He made you, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has good works for you and me to do. What we need to do though is open our eyes to be observant of them when they present themselves. And it's through your service to others that he intends to interest others in following Jesus' son. Now, I've got one more thing here I want to mention, something that we, we need to put into practice. This is the third way that we can be salt and light to those around us, and that is to just genuinely be ourselves. This is such a, I know this is duh, like, wow, how do you think of that? But this is actually, I think, so important. You see, no pretense, no put-ons, no fakery, just actually be you. Don't be afraid to let others around you know some of your struggles. That's actually a great connector to people. Let them see you trying to solve your problems as an honest Jesus follower. Let them see that you don't have all the answers. Don't act like a Jesus follower who's got all the answers. Yuck, yuck. Let them see that you need other people. Let them see that you aren't perfect. You don't think you are. Let them see that you choose to live in a community with other Jesus followers who are way far from perfect themselves. And together you serve, together you share life, together you learn, together you grow, together you get better, together you celebrate life in the context of the gospel of Jesus. When people see that kind of integrity and community and love and support, many times they're interested. Many times they want that because they're not really seeing it or finding it anywhere else. People who don't know Jesus, but they know you follow him, they, they don't generally expect you to walk on water. <laughs> They're not looking to you to raise the dead. They're not looking to you to have a perfect marriage or be perfect parents or have perfect children. They just want to see if you are real, if you are honest, if your faith has any relevance to your everyday life and does it give you hope? Hope at the end of the day. And how does it help you handle things like worry? And how does it help you handle things like fear? How does it help you resolve problems in relationships? And how does it help you to deepen friendships? One time Holly and I were having a fight. I know, I know that's shocking, <laughs> shocking to you. But we were having a fight, kind of yelling at each other about something. <laughs> As always, I don't remember at all what it was about. But I put it on hold to take the trash out. Have you ever done that? And you're, you know, you're in the, you're in a fight. It's like, hey, hang on to that. Life gets away. I got to take care of this detail. I'll be right back to keep fighting. Hold on to that. Anyway, that's what I did. And I went outside and my neighbor was taking his trash out too. And he did the usual thing. You know, you always do when you see a neighbor. Hey, how's it going? And I was in the funk of the fight. And when you're in the funk of the fight, sometimes you don't have the, you know, the answer that you'd like to have. But I said, oh, it's gone better. Holly and I are having a fight. This was in summer too. Our windows were open. Pretty sure he heard Holly cussing. And uh, 
So he said, uh, if anybody was cussing, it would have been me. Not Holly, I'm ashamed to say, but that, anyway. But he said, oh, sorry to hear that. And then, you know, because we've had, we'd had he, he's like, I, I didn't think ministers struggle with that kind of stuff. I said, well, I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> and I said, we do. And I said, I need to get back in there and work on this thing, resolve it. But you know what? Here's what I noticed from that. I didn't think about it at the time, but later on I noticed a greater openness on his part to share about stuff going on in his life. Now, he knew we were anything but perfect, but I mean, I think just acknowledging that to him openly opened doors, actually. Uh, I think people watch us to see, honestly, if if we can be honest or are we going to tell lies? Um, Are we going to try to cover our tracks, right? Are we going to be forgiving? Are we going to own our own faults, our own garbage, our own stuff? Do we seek forgiveness when we should be seeking forgiveness? And if they see cover-ups, if they see self-righteous attitudes, attempts to create an image that, you know, my life's all together and happy. After all, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. They can see through that. I think they see right through it. And then they know better than to believe us, you see. What people need to see in us is our honest attempts to just know Jesus better. That's what we do here on Sunday morning. This is one of our attempts. It's a big one every week where we just, we just try to get to know Jesus better. What they need to see is an honest, consistent effort on our part to follow him, you know, Monday to Saturday. And they need to see a willingness in us to admit it when we blow it, when we fail. Because, friends, that's genuine Christianity. It's nothing more than that. It's nothing less than that. That's just genuine Christianity. And this is what our neighbors need to see in us, don't you think? Genuine, down-to-earth faith in action. Authentic Christian living. Loving care, loving service. That's Jesus' plan right there in a nutshell. That is what he intends to use to attract others to himself. So let me ask you, what do you think people see in you? What do they see in you? Let me ask you this, what do you think they see in us? Do they see a community that cares about each other and about the people around them, the people out there? Do they see a congregation that is honest about its struggles? I hope they do, people who aren't perfect and don't pretend to be. I I hope that's way more than a label. You know, if you're a kingdom citizen, imagine this. Jesus says this to you. He says, you are salt and light. That's what he says to you and to me. What he's saying is you will affect the people around you. You will, positively or negatively, you will. You will affect them. And the people around you are always watching. They want to see, is your faith deep enough that you will follow Jesus even when it costs you something? They want to see, when you say people matter to God, will you demonstrate that they actually matter? Let me ask you, what kind of effect are you having on the people around you? What kind of effect are you having on your family? What kind of effect are you having on your neighbors or on your friends or on the people at school or the people with whom you work? 
Now, if we're going to be honest, <laughs> might as well, we're in church. Uh, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? We're not getting us all right, if we're honest. And there is the beauty of the gospel, don't you see, right there. Because the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel is that even if we have done poorly, he's not done with us. I mean, right now, today, right here in this moment, we can confess we've been blowing this. Blowing it by how we act or what we do, or maybe blowing it because we never act or do anything. Never say anything to anybody. Well, the beauty of the gospel is we can confess it and we can be forgiven and we are fully accepted and we don't stop being salt and light. He doesn't leave us. He just says to us again, you, you are my salt and light. And we can ask him to use us and make us better reflectors of his glory. You know, I said earlier, this is a season of invitation. So I'm gonna challenge us as a church and this is the same as, this is challenging myself too. Uh, I'm very guilty of this. Um, I like to hide the fact that I'm a pastor. I don't know, I don't know why I'm ashamed of it, but I, I, I tend to hide it. So if Holly and I meet a couple and we're talking to them and, and we're, you know, we're making small, all the small talk you do up and down, this, that, and the other, Holly will always say, hey, my husband's a pastor. Cat's out of the bag now, you know. She's not a, she's just not, you know, I think she's, she's proud of following Jesus, I guess. <laughs> I, so my point really is I need to change. So when I'm challenging you on this, I want you to see that I'm right here with you. This isn't the pastor's. I would ask you to pray about, to think about reaching out in this season of invitation that's coming up. Who at work, who at school, who in the neighborhood could you be really watching, praying for? Are there opportunities? Are there needs for you to reach in and to love them in the name of Jesus somehow? And, and maybe even invite them. You know, we're gonna do four services this year for Christmas Eve. I don't know why, I don't know why people who don't follow Jesus would ever go to church just because they're invited, but a lot of them do. So I'm challenging myself on this as much as I'm challenging you. Will you reach out? Will you pray? Will you ask Jesus to create connection in your life with people that don't know Jesus? Maybe even as the time rolls around, as it feels appropriate, maybe even invite them to come to church in this special season of invitation. Anybody willing to do that? If you put your hand up, you're, you're saying yes. <laughs> Jesus is watching all of us. Okay, pray with me. Father, we don't get this right. I I'm, uh, pray for myself, God, I don't get this right. Uh, there are times I see needs and I avoid them. I don't, I don't wanna take the time, make the effort, invest the energy or the money or the resources necessary to address somebody else's need. And that's, that's my own hardness of heart, God. I pray you'd change that. I pray for all of us, God, that where there's hardness of heart like that, you would change that. Pray you'd give us eyes and a heart and the mind of Jesus toward others. I pray in this season of invitation, God, this weird time in our culture and in our calendar uh, here in North America, that you would help us to connect with, to see the needs of other people out there. And if we've got any resources to meet those needs, 
Would you help us to do that, Father? Would you help us, Father, to identify folks uh, that we could reach out to and even invite to join us as we gather in this place for worship? And boy, God, if that happens, we pray they would hear something good about Jesus. We pray they would see something about him that would draw them to that place of wanting to know more. Father, we want to get to know Jesus better. We want people around us to get to know Jesus. I mean, that's such a big piece of us being salt and light. So, Father, would you make that happen in us and through us? All of this we pray in his very precious name. Amen.